Good morning, everyone. I would like to start out uh, saying a few things. Thank you, Beth. A few things that I said last week uh, to kind of get us going again this week. So we're in this series to know Jesus through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about 1,500 years worth of writing, which occurred before Jesus was born. Well, in this section of the series now, we're trying to know Jesus through the Old Testament law. This is the hardest part of the Old Testament to find Jesus in because the law says all sorts of things that we don't really understand very well. Things like you cannot work on the Sabbath day. And that did did not just mean going to your job. Uh, This meant uh, not even working in your own home on things. Uh, it has all sorts of crazy food laws. Some of you have read, made it to this part in the Old Testament. You know, you can't eat bacon. You can't eat ham. So why, why even live? Um, you know, you can't eat rabbits. Okay. You can't eat shellfish? Now, I like my calamari. It also, somebody else does too. Um, it, uh, and we also know that the New Testament has some passages which are very harshly phrased against the Old Testament law. Take this one uh, from uh, Galatians chapter 5. For if you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Often we uh, think of Christianity and we think of the New Testament as the religion that set us free from Old Testament laws. But if you read the actual words of Jesus, it says uh, almost the opposite. Listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. Really? No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is accomplished. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you have this handout, and if you'd like to fill in blanks, we've already come to our first blanks where we said sometimes uh, Jesus' teaching seems to say the opposite of what we think. So Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, here comes your second blank, but to fulfill it, or I think as our translation says very well today, to accomplish its purpose. So this tells us some stuff about what Jesus thought of the Old Testament law. First of all, it tells us that he doesn't think the God who gave us the Old Testament law was some scrupulous rule keeper kind of God who goes around saying things like, hey, rules is rules. You've got to obey the rules. He doesn't see God that way. That was a weird voice, wasn't it? Uh, Jesus doesn't believe God is a cosmic but bad parent who gives us strange things to do, and then when we ask why, barks back at him, because I said so, that's why. Jesus believes, and he's right, that the reason the law was given is right there in the Old Testament for all to see. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good so as to keep us alive, as is now the case. 
If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. Okay. So Jesus believes we were given the law for our good. Jesus sees the Old Testament law differently than we may have been seeing it before he came along. So here are some things that he sees differently. First of all, Jesus sees the law as coming from a God who knows best the patterns for society that produce prosperity. And God wants prosperity for all of society. And evidently, that pattern included a lot of protection for society's most vulnerable, the poor, women, children, foreigners and aliens. In fact, you can see this in our modern world. Just ask yourself, look at the societies that offer the most legal protection to the vulnerable, to the poor, to women, to children, to minorities, to aliens and foreigners. Aren't those also all of the most richest nations on earth? Now, look at the nations on earth that offer almost no protection to the vulnerable, no protection for the poor, women, children, foreigners, or aliens. Aren't those also the poorest nations on earth that do that? So God knew what he was doing when he created this pattern. Listen to this section from Exodus chapter 23. We're going to, before this is over, read almost all of Exodus chapter 23. Okay, that's a pastor exaggeration, one-third. Um, We're going to read the first third of Exodus chapter 23 and ask yourself after each of these laws are kind of read, who is that protecting? Exodus chapter 23. You must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. And do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. In a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death, for I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something you can clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth. You must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. I had a professor in seminary, a professor of missiology. He had been a missionary in Chile. So uh, he was driving one day in Chile. If you've ever been to Central or South America, you know that traffic laws do exist, but they're more like guidelines. And he was coming down a hill. He had no traffic signal, but as he got to the bottom of the hill, somebody went disobeyed their traffic signal and pulled out right in front of him. He broadsided that vehicle. In South America, cars are very small. Car was flipped upside down and someone inside that car was killed. The police officer came and said, what happened? He said, I was coming down the hill. Um, There's no signal on my lane, but they came out of their signal and I struck them broadside. Police officer said, okay. He went around and talked to everyone else on the street, dozens and dozens of people on the streets of this big city. All of them said that American came screaming down that hill. When that guy pulled out, he had no time to see him and he broadsided him and killed him. 
person after person said, he came screaming down that hill so fast they couldn't see him and he killed those people. He was thrown into Chilean prison for manslaughter, sentence indefinite. Why would dozens of people give that account? Because in Chilean culture, you never go against your own people. You never go against your own race, no matter what you saw. You never go against your own social class, no matter what you saw. If it's an internal dispute, you never go against your own family. The only reason he got out of that prison after eight months was because some folks from his home church here in the States knew some U.S. senators and they put pressure on Chile to reverse that. God's law comes into cultures, and just remember that all cultures on earth used to be like that culture. Our culture used to be like that culture. But it comes and it says, hey, truth is truth. No matter whether they are part of your race, part of your class, part of your family or not, you don't jail innocent people just to protect your own. It said that in the Old Testament. Do not slant the testimony, your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. Now, sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes the rich oppress the poor. I know someone who started, a, uh, their family had a small kind of tech startup. It was kind of their dream to own their own company. One day they get a letter. They're being sued by a large corporation. Now, later in this story, uh, it would come out in a memo internal to that corporation that this had happened. The lawyers had said, look, this small family startup, um, they have some skills, they have some technology, and they have some practices that will hurt our bottom line a little bit. And if they grow, you know, the hurt will grow. Now, we have no means uh, by which to fight them. However, they're such a small company that we can begin to slap them with lawsuits We have no grounds to sue them, but they have no resources to fight it. And we'll literally be able to sue them out of existence. And the sad part is that it worked. The justice system uh, was engineered in favor of the large corporation and that small family lost their dream of owning their own business. The memo thing came out later and it was too late to do any good for them. Even though the Old Testament law said, in a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. God said a long time ago, this behavior is the sort of stuff that destroys society. Now for these last few laws I'm going to read from Exodus 23, notice how even slaves and foreigners are protected. Notice how even animals are protected. Notice how even the environment is protected. Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie cultivated during this uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows up on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day, you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and foreigners living among you to be refreshed. Imagine how much better our food we eat would be in this country if we let the land naturally renew itself every seven years instead of blasting the soil with nitrogen-based fertilizer every 12 months. Imagine how much better our environment and our wildlife would be if while we sat here today, one-seventh of all of our farmland was off rotation 
and animals and wildlife that lived around there could come in and eat whatever they wanted that grew up wild. You know one of the things they would eat? Six years of accumulated plant pests. Instead of what we do now, which is plant every square inch of it and then throw more than half of it away in the dumpster behind Applebee's. We're talking about how Jesus saw the Old Testament law and how it was for our good. So the second thing I want to say is that while our obedience to the law makes God happy, that wasn't the point. The point was to make us happy. And I really came to understand that this last year. So my family's a big amusement park family. We love amusement parks and we ride all the rides. But uh, we don't so much like the walking. So when we come to a ride, we just ride that ride repeatedly until we've worn it out and then we move on to the next one. Now, somewhere along the line, I've gotten to where I cannot ride the spinny, swingy rides. That, that make, now makes me nauseous, and it lasts all day long. So when we come to the swinging Viking ship, I just find myself a park bench in the shade, and I just sit and watch that one. So my kids ride the swinging Viking ship. They come off, and they're laughing. They're like, that's the best one we've ever ridden, Dad. I'm like, well, go ride it again. And my daughter looks all sad, and she's like, Dad, I don't want to leave you out here. You're just, you know, sitting on the bench. And suddenly I realized something that was completely true. And I said it. I said, honey, I'm at a place in my life where, I can't look at her. Um, I, I'm at a place in my life where seeing you guys come down that exit course laughing like that is the reason I paid to get in this park. I could do this all day long. Seeing you enjoy yourself that much is the reason I came. And she said, great. And they wrote it over and over again <laughs> for an hour When you're having fun, that brings me great joy. And I thought, this is how God must be. This is how God must be. God has great joy when we have joy in this life that comes as a natural consequence of keeping his law. The law was not a a stale legalism. It's a gift of grace and it's a treasure and it was given for our good. Okay, Great. Well, now, if all of that is true, if Jesus sees the law for our good, then why is he constantly fighting with these rabbis in the New Testament over keeping the law? So we're going to answer that today. This is a huge question. So there was this political party in Jesus' day consisting of a group of rabbis called the Pharisees. And they were really all about the Old Testament law. And Jesus is always fighting with them about the Old Testament law. Why? It wasn't because Jesus didn't like the Old Testament law. It was because in the hands of the Pharisees, that law had been robbed of its whole point, the way that they practiced it. In Jesus' view, for instance, if you had a law that said, honor your parents, and then the Pharisees just found some way to weasel around it and do the opposite, then then why obey the law at all? Jesus says exactly that. In Mark chapter 7, listen to this argument he has with the Pharisees. Then Jesus said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. Whoa, okay, very serious about the father and mother thing. But you Pharisees say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. 
See what the Pharisees are doing? You can give money to their religious cause and then tell your parents, sorry, I gave it all to the rabbis. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own traditions. And this, Jesus says, is only one example among many others. So Jesus said the law was given to care for the elderly, but the Pharisees used it to keep their own money for themselves. The point was that everyone in their old age would be cared for. Jesus says, well, if you're not going to do that, if you're going to take out the part of the law that was for our good, why bother keeping the rest of it at all? Why do you guys bother? Jesus said the same thing about the tithe, giving 10% of your income. So tithe in the Old Testament uh, took care of people. It took care of the religious priest who served the community and, and ran worship. Remember, Old Testament priests could not have their own land. So the people took care of the priest. The priest took care of worship. Also, the tithe took care of the poor and the forgotten in the community. Listen how the tithe is described. Now, they had an annual tithe. And then every three years, they had an extra tithe. Sound familiar? Old Testament financial challenge. All right. So this, this, this is about the every three-year one. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, that's their priest, who will receive no allotment of land from among you, as well as to foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless all your work. So then, just like now, you gave a tithe for two reasons. To have a beautiful place to worship and people to take care of that. And so that the vulnerable in your community would be taken care of. That's who the tithe was for. The priest and the vulnerable. So just kind of like what we did today. A little bit ago, we took an offering. Some of that will be used to uh, pay the bill we owe for patching the parking lot. Getting that in good repair. Making it safe and clean and ready for the friends you've invited. And you're praying they will accept your invitation and come next week. And some of it will go to the Hope Center to train inner city kids to be leaders, spiritual leaders in their own future. Now, the Pharisees saw the tithe differently. First of all, the New Testament reveals often that the Pharisees were rich. And they thought the poor were poor because God cursed them. So you could just leave them as they were until they got themselves straightened out. So then you could give your entire tithe, oh, conveniently, to the rabbis. Jesus says, why do you guys tithe and then miss the whole point of tithing? He says this in uh, Matthew chapter 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And then there was all of Jesus' endless fighting with the Pharisees over keeping the Sabbath. Now, in the Pharisees' view, the reason why you didn't work on the Sabbath was because God said so and because God wants your full attention that whole day. So they came up with all these extra crazy laws not found in the Old Testament to make sure that you couldn't break the laws you do find in the Old Testament. The Old Testament says don't work on the Sabbath. So they said, well, what's work? So then they come up with laws like this. You could tie half of a knot in a rope, but you couldn't tie a whole knot in a rope because that would be work. You could walk 
on the Sabbath, but only so many steps. And then you had to put down a mat and rest for a little bit. And, and, then, and then that wouldn't be work. Jesus was outraged because this made the Sabbath a hassle for working people. When the Sabbath was made for working people in the first place. So in Jesus' view, the Sabbath was made for work, working people. In the Pharisees' view, the Sabbath was a hassle for working people by making them obey annoying laws in order to make God not mad at you. Listen how the Sabbath is described in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, who's going to benefit from a law like that the most? Probably the defenseless, people who could be forced or coerced into working a seventh day. Orphans, debtors, widows, low-rage workers, prisoners, refugees, aliens. That's the Old Testament, and it was especially true during Jesus' day in the New Testament when in the Roman Empire, at Jesus' time, everyone was expected to work seven days a week from sunup to sundown. Except for Jews. They worked out a special deal in the empire because they had a religious law that required them not to work on the Sabbath. So in all the Roman Empire, the Jews were the only people who didn't have to work seven days a week, sun up to sundown. Harold Macmillan was a long time ago prime minister of Great Britain. And he said that the Old Testament Sabbath was the greatest piece of workers' protection legislation in the history of humanity. Jesus spells it out that way in uh, Mark chapter 2. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. That says it right there. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And Jesus was not proclaiming something new. He was proclaiming the way it always was. He was undoing the way they were teaching it at that time, putting it back to the way it was intended. And God, Jesus himself spells out his love for the law of God, but his disdain for the way they were teaching it at that time. In uh, Matthew chapter 23, hear this. Then Jesus said to his crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. He says the law is good. The way these guys practice it, don't do that. So many twisted things in our society would be made straight if we applied these good laws of God to it. The family-owned farm 
practically an extinct animal in our time. Over the last century, family-owned farms have been steadily swallowed up by banks who then sold them to large corporations because they had one bad year. In the Old Testament, if you had one bad year and could not repay someone who'd loaned you seed money, they took your farm. Absolutely, they took your farm and they owned it and they made money off of it to recoup the losses for the money they'd loaned you. But in the Old Testament law, it said they could only do that for seven years. And after seven years, it went back to the original family to let them start again. I wish we did it that way here. And the Sabbath rest one day in every seven. So this week, if you have a friend who works in fire rescue or ambulance rescue or a police department, works in a hospital as a doctor or a nurse, just ask them to sit down for you and sketch out on a piece of paper the work hours that they are asked to keep over a two-week span. For nurses, minimum 12-hour shift. For surgeons, depending on how things go, sometimes they're in there performing surgeries for 21 consecutive hours. 14 days in a row patrolling the streets looking for bad guys with no break for police officers is the way the schedule can sometimes fall. And when you ask people, what is up with that? Everybody talks like there is no other way. That's the only way to run that. Well, I refuse to believe that. When you're giving someone a gun, when you're giving them a surgical scalpel, when you're putting someone in a respirator, telling them to go into a dark, smoky building and see if anyone's alive, that person had better be well-rested and in their right mind at all times. And if you're telling me these insane schedules are the only way to staff these life-saving positions 24-7, then we need to hire more people. I have I known people who try to get into hospital work, try to get into uh, fire departments, try to get into police forces. Very hard, very hard to get in. And then you get in and you're worked like this. So we need to hire more people. Now, somebody's probably saying on the other side, well, you know, there's not resources to do that. Well, then maybe we all need to buck up and address that problem. Maybe we all need to make some sacrifices so the people who are literally saving our lives can receive the rest that is woven into creation. Guys, God rested. God rested. And then we wonder why doctors and nurses make mistakes and firefighters get injured and police snap under pressure because they're human beings who need a Sabbath rest. What about credit card debt that's turning our entire nation into a culture of slaves? Okay, are you guys watching these real estate shows? My wife and daughter are watching these real estate shows where this couple is being shown around by these agents and you know, okay, and he's a stay-at-home artist and she teaches kindergarten part-time and their house buying budget is $450,000. Have you seen these shows? How is he a stay-at-home artist and she works part-time for a kindergarten and they have half a million dollar budget to buy a house? Because they're in California. And out there, ask your friends, they're all on 100-year mortgages they will never repay. They're on the rent-to-own plan without the own part because they die before they finish. Most of California is owned by banks. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it recently, but the bank really doesn't care if you have a savings account anymore or not. When I was a kid, you got a savings account and they paid you some interest to keep your money there. Now, 
Now they'll give you half a percent if you're the anointed one of God for a savings account. You would climb over, you know, a pile of dead people to get to a half a percent savings account these days. However, the bank will sign you up for credit cards to go into debt with their, church, their bank-sponsored credit card at 20% all day long. If only we followed the Old Testament law, you shall not loan money to your neighbor with interest. It would change the way our entire culture works. Up to one in three Americans this morning has a sexually transmitted disease right now. One in three and all the misery and the expense that goes along with that. And I know some of you are suffering that right now. And I know and God knows that is because uh, some, for some of you, someone lied to you. And so you know better than any of us that that would all vanish in one generation if we practiced the Old Testament's laws for sex and marriage. Two people who wait for marriage cannot give each other a disease. And if they're faithful within their marriage, one cannot come from outside. With the application of God's law in 20 years, we wouldn't even know what herpes, HPV, HIV were anymore. And all the time parents ask me, well, how can I teach my kids something I didn't do myself? Because it's for their good. I teach my kids all kinds of stuff I didn't do when I was their age because I'm like, this way is better. Don't do it the way I did it. It didn't really work out for me or I kind of got away with it, but barely. We teach our kids the best way we know all the time. For their good. Obedience to the law of God makes God happy because it makes us happy. And he is for us. And he, and he gave it to us for our good. Obeying God brings all sorts of naturally occurring blessings. And those of you who are debt free today, you know this. Not borrowing is freedom. And those of you who live simply know that when you quit coveting what your neighbors had and the junk and the, the properties and everything that they owned, that that was actually freedom for you. And those of you who observe a Sabbath rest, you know this, taking a day off brings good health. Most of our mental and physical diseases these days are stress-related. And we act like those who are suffering from stress-related disorders are sissies. But there are physical limitations to this body and this mind, and there is freedom when we admit that. Caring for widows, orphans, and the poor makes less criminals. And it makes less insane people for that political party you hate so much to steal votes from. So think right now, some of you are so political, so think of that political party you hate so much. I don't care which one it is, just get it in your mind. Now think of the people who vote for them and how many of them are oppressed, how many of them are desperate, how many of them are crazed. Now, if we applied God's law and took care of people so they were not oppressed and desperate, then that political party you hate so much wouldn't have people to manipulate and lie to to take their votes, and they'd be done. God's law brings a naturally occurring blessing. 
I have a story here. I don't know who wrote it. It says author unknown, but it says uh, during the waning years of the depression, a small in a small southeastern Idaho community, I used to stop by Brother Miller's roadside stand for farm fresh produce. One day, I noticed a small boy, delicate of bone and feature, ragged but clean, hungrily appraising a basket of freshly picked green peas. I couldn't help overhearing the conversation between Brother Miller and the ragged boy next to me. Hello, Barry. How are you today? Hello, Mr. Miller. Fine, thank you. Just admiring them peas. Sure look good. They are good, Barry. How's your maw? Fine. Getting stronger all the time. Good. Anything I can help you with? No, sir. Just admiring them peas. Would you like to take some home? No, sir. I got nothing to pay for them with. Well, what have you got to trade me for some of those peas? Oh, I got my prized Aggie, best towel around here. Okay, I had to look that up. Marbles. He's talking about kids' marbles. Is that right? Let me see it. Here it is. She's a dandy. Ooh, I can see that. Hmm. Only thing is, this one's blue, and I sort of go for red. Do you have a red one like this at home? Not exactly, but almost. Tell you what. Take this sack of peas home with you, and next trip this way, you let me look at that red towel. Sure will. Thanks, Mr. Miller. Mrs. Miller, who'd been standing beside me, came over to help. With a smile, she said, there are two other boys like him in our community. All three are in very poor circumstances. Jim just loves to bargain with them for peas, apples, tomatoes, or whatever. And when they come back with the red marbles, and they always do, He decides he doesn't like red after all and sends him home with a bag of produce for a green marble or an orange one, perhaps. Just recently, I had occasion to visit some old friends in that Idaho community, and I learned that Brother Miller had passed. They were going to the viewing, so I accompanied them. Ahead of us in line, there were three young men. One was in an army uniform. The other two wore short haircuts, dark suits, white shirts, obviously bankers or lawyers or educators. They approached Sister Miller, standing, smiling, and composed by her husband's casket. Each of the young men hugged her, kissed her on the cheek, spoke briefly with her, moved on to the casket. Her misty, light blue eyes followed them as one by one each young man stopped briefly, placed his own warm hand over the cold, pale hand in the casket. Each left the mortuary, awkwardly wiping his eyes. Our turn came to meet Miss Sister Miller. I told her who I was, and I mentioned the story she'd told me about the marbles. Eyes glistening, she took me by the hand and led me to the casket. This is an amazing coincidence, she said. Those three young men that just left were the boys I told you about. They just told me how they appreciated the things Jim traded them. Now, at last, when Jim could not change his mind about color or size, they came to pay their debt. We've never had a great deal of wealth in this world, she confided. But right now, Jim would consider himself the richest man in Idaho. With loving gentleness, she lifted the lifeless fingers of her deceased husband, resting underneath were three magnificently shiny red marbles. When you obey the law of God, it will cost you many things in this life. But in the end will bring you a prosperity of things that cannot be imagined. A wealth that cannot be understood until it is received. This is why God gave us the law. For our good. And our good brings him great joy. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you this morning for your law. Lord, we are sorry that we got even that wrong and somehow turned that into a confusing mess. And we thank you that you sent Jesus to straighten that out and tell us again who you were, why you came. As we sang earlier, you are a good, good father. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. It's the name of Jesus who reveals this to us, we pray. Amen. Jesus also gave us a gift to receive in the Lord's table. So if someone would like, the, the servers would like to come and prepare that. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you, there's nothing I wouldn't do for your good. In the same way he took a cup, he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. I know you're gonna get my law all screwed up, you're gonna picture me differently than I really am. I forgive you of all of that. I, there's nothing I wouldn't do for your good. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death till I eat and drink it with you and my Father's kingdom of unimaginable prosperity. Let us stand together and proclaim this mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. For let us keep the feast Hallelujah. The gifts of God, there they are. For the people of God, there you are. Each day, may Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. So here at Lakeland, we like to come down the center aisles, tear off a piece of that bread, dip it in the cup. We receive this good God and all his gifts. There's tables at the side if you want. You don't have to, but you can kneel and pray. Pray any kind of prayer you want to pray there. Then we go down the outside aisles and we we close the service out together. So let us pray together. We've been praying, singing this song. If you know the words, you can sing it. And if you don't, that's just fine. But let us pray together. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in his precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Let us stand together then for the benediction. I thought it'd be cool if we got a blessing that came from the scriptures we were studying today. So this one comes from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy. Let us uh, say this blessing over one another. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go forth in peace. Amen.